From American Public Media, this is Campaign 68. I'm Kate Ellis. People say, oh, they read my book, Nixon Land, and it's so uncannily parallel to what's happening now. But, you know, myself, I, I don't see the uncanniness. I just see the unfolding of the divisions that are basically constitutive of America and this adventure we have of trying to live together in such a fundamentally divided society. This is historian Rick Perlstein. Perlstein has published three books mapping the rise of conservatism in America since the 1960s. In 2017, Perlstein wrote a major article explaining that the election of President Donald Trump had made him rethink some of his ideas about conservative politics in America and the role of extremism on the right. I sat down with Perlstein recently to explore these ideas, along with my co-producer, Stephen Smith. And just a note, this interview includes a word that's offensive. We started by asking Pearlstein about his first book. It's called Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus. Pearlstein told us that what he means by American consensus is the belief among Americans after World War II that the country was united and at peace with itself. We asked him what he thinks caused this American consensus to break. The assassination of John F. Kennedy in November of 1963 was experienced as such a trauma, not just because a beloved president had been shot in the street, but because Americans believed so fervently that their country was different. You know, we didn't settle our scores through violence in the street. You know, we didn't have government through gunplay. That was for the rest of the world. And in a cascade of events that are very familiar to us, Uh, over the next, certainly, uh, 10 years and after, America began to experience more and more of a sense of itself as fractured, as divided. And uh, one of the things I've narrated in my own book was the role of figures like Richard Nixon, but uh, also uh, George Wallace, uh, the governor of Alabama, who ran for president several times during that period, in exploiting those nascent divisions in order to uh, aggrandize their own political power in a way that turned those divisions into a structural factor in American life. And to make a long story short, they've been institutionalized in uh, the red and blue divide that um, we're living with today. Was there some particular architect or author of the the, the divisiveness? You could say that the author of the divisiveness was the structure of uh, the American Republic itself. I mean, in a lot of ways, this goes back to the founding and certainly to the Constitutional Convention, in which these almost two separate societies in the North and the South, one uh, a commercial capitalist society and one an almost semi-feudal slave society, had to create a nation together and a government governing both parts of the country. And the way that happened at the Constitutional Convention was slavery was basically taken off the table. It was, it was bracketed. And uh, that sort of original wound uh, just kept on festering all the way through the Civil War, which, of course, uh, reached its apotheosis with you know, nearly a million people on each side slaughtering each other. So there always was that sort of wound in the background, even at the times in which America seemed most united and at peace with itself. And then, of course, America, all through the 20th century, begins to experience itself as a global power uh, with outposts overseas. So you get the Cold War folded in, and then you get the Vietnam War and the trauma of that. So the conditions were always there. 
but the person who was most responsible for turning this into uh, a political modus operandi, the person who kind of uh, bequeathed future politicians the language through which to exploit these divisions for political gain really was Richard Nixon, starting uh, really all the way going back to the 1940s in which he won his first congressional campaign in 1946 by uh, some very pioneering red-baiting of his uh, liberal opponent. Then in 1950, when he did the same with uh, his opponent when he won the Senate race, and then really he set the kind of cultural template for the kind of divisions we experience as far back in, 1950, as in 1952, in which he uh, gave a very famous speech uh, on TV answering the charge that he was uh, on the take from some of his rich donors by accusing his accusers, who were liberals and Democrats, of being cultural snobs who were looking down their noses at the hard-working middle-class uh, white picket fence America. And through this very sanctimonious performance in which he brought forth, uh, in a joking way, the case of his family dog named Checkers. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. He taught Republicans for all time and conservatives how to divide the world into the kind of hardworking, middle American, salt of the earth, middle class, normal Americans and the not quite American kind of liberal aristocrats. And you see that language very present in the rhetoric of someone like Donald Trump, who actually borrowed Richard Nixon's most enduring formulation of that division in a 1969 speech in which he said that he was defending the great silent majority of Americans. That was a slogan that Donald Trump uh, adopted in 2016. Thank you. It's a term that I haven't heard for years, but I really think it applies now more than maybe ever before. And that's the term, the silent majority. Have you all heard that? In the spring of 2017, Rick, you published an article in the New York Times uh, magazine called, I Thought I Understood the American Right, Trump Proved Me Wrong. That piece got a lot of attention. What did you get wrong? The story I told and a lot of other historians told about uh, the rise of the American right was that what allowed it to succeed, what allowed it to enter the mainstream of American political life was that it had disciplined the extremists in their midst, uh, the violent forces of, uh, say, the Ku Klux Klan, or the conspiratorial anti-communists of the John Birch Society, uh, the anti-Semites, uh, the George Wallaces of the world. And what Donald Trump forced a lot of his historians 
to re-examine was the extent to which the conservative movement was able to grow not by silencing those voices, but kind of simultaneously quieting them and exploiting them. And that the kind of feral, angry, racist, violent energies represented by the people who William F. Buckley said are not part of us really were part of them. And we begin to see a history in which, for example, I've been studying right now, uh, there's a big resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in America in the late 1970s. You know, we're beginning to see, uh, look at things like during World War II, uh, there was a group called the Christian Front that was vandalizing synagogues and violently attacking Jews in cities like New York and Boston, often with the acquiescence of the Catholic hierarchies in those cities. We are looking at figures like David Duke, who's at the center of uh, Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansmen, and saying, wow, maybe this is a little more complicated and a little uglier than we thought. But to, to be clear, in the, in the earlier part of the last century, the Klan actually was very public, had, you know, uh, uh, big marches down uh, streets in Washington, D.C., Actually, You're talking about in the 1920s. Yes, that's right. Right. Actually ran some towns openly. That's right. That hasn't... Ran the state of Indiana. Yes, right. Right. But that didn't replay itself as publicly. What you're saying is that there was a more uh, clandestine, if you will, connection between the right and these groups? Well, so any discussion of the long sweep of American history and American political development has to put the Depression and the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt at its center. And uh, America in the 1920s was going through one of these periodic periods of profound nativism. Its uh, most triumphant legislative achievement was almost cutting off all immigration, except for a very narrow ban from Western Europe in 1924. And that was very much a product of uh, the power of the Ku Klux Klan, which had millions of members, and many of those members were quite powerful politicians. But what happened uh, with the election of Franklin Roosevelt with a coalition that really kind of brought together lots of ethnic strands in American life was that he seemed to contain the absolute economic savagery of the Depression by building the American state, by uh, building up the institutions of liberalism. And he did so so effectively with an assist from uh, the contribution that World War II made to America's economy and the kind of unity of purpose that World War II uh, joined Americans in, that immediately following World War II, the right in America seemed to become an irrelevancy. Even though culturally, in a lot of ways, the 1950s was a very conservative place. I mean, we think of, you know, Leave it to Beaver and Mom at Home with the, 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 the you know, the 2.6 kids and all that. Politically and in terms of policy, you have a figure like Dwight D. Eisenhower saying that if anyone challenges something like Social Security, uh, they're not going to live to see another day in American politics. He says the only people in American politics that believe that sort of thing are a couple of oil, uh, you know, oil millionaires in Texas, and they're stupid. He literally calls them stupid, right? So conservatism doesn't really seem like it's an important part of American politics. 
And it's really only with the kind of feral social energies of the 1960s, you know, very uh, violent clashes over civil rights, not only in the South, but in the North, uh, race riots, people beginning to turn their back on America's military adventures abroad, that those kind of reactionary uh, let's put the fence up and protect ourselves from those who are strange or different and uh, value change over continuity becomes an important part of American political life. And Richard Nixon, of course, wins the presidency in 1968. But even before that, in 1966, Ronald Reagan wins the governorship of California. And he does so by saying, uh, well, I don't necessarily think it's a it's, it's, it, it should be illegal for people to discriminate when they decide to sell their homes to only white people. He says that you know, there's lots of freeloaders who are taking advantage of our welfare system. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare, her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. He says that uh, what he would tell anti-war protesters at the universities uh, is that they should obey the rules or get out. And, you know, basically California, much to the shock of the political establishment in the United States, elects him governor in a landslide in 1966 and re-elects him in 1970 in an even bigger landslide. And basically ever since, uh, those sorts of energies become more and more prominent in American political life until, of course, uh, Ronald Reagan wins the presidency in 1980. And then 14 years after that, the Reaganites take over Congress in, under the leadership of Newt Gingrich. So if right-wing um, extremism is at play in some covert or um, overt ways during this period, where would one see it? How was it um, expressed? Let me, let me um, give you an example from something that happened in the state of West Virginia in 1974. In Kanawha County, which is where Charleston, West Virginia is, the school board approves something that seems entirely innocuous to, to, to most of cosmopolitan liberal America, a set of new textbooks. But the very fundamentalist and conservative residents of kind of the coal haulers around Charleston consider these books to be full of blasphemy, running America down, apologizing for America, uh, you know, supplemental readings uh, by African-American radicals. And they get so angry at that that uh, they form a political movement to take on the school board that ultimately ends up with the school board building being dynamited. This is 1974. Right around the same time, street battles between uh, residents and the police are happening on uh, the south side of Boston over school integration. Um, so these are you know, literally violent clashes by people kind of preserving what they see as their way of life. Now, the situation in West Virginia is particularly interesting because at that time, in 1974, there's a brand new think tank in Washington called the Heritage Foundation. And what people who are you know, kind of conservative activists in Washington see is these kinds of discontents are very productive to organizing, to electing conservative politicians and passing conservative policies in Washington. 
So just to take one example, the Heritage Foundation sends lawyers down to West Virginia to defend the people accused of blowing up the school board building with dynamite. And the people around the Heritage Foundation are uh, uh, part of a movement that very, very soon after the words um, gets dubbed the new right. And one of the leaders of that movement is uh, an organizer called Howard Phillips. And he's asked, what is the new right? What, is, what are you guys all about? He says, we organize discontent. So these people kind of casting their eyes in a very politically entrepreneurial way for people who are so angry that they're willing to kind of put their bodies on the line for conservative politics, for conservative ideals, for conservative communities, become a resource to be exploited by organizers, by politicians, and that's how those kinds of angry, violent energies become channeled into uh, mainstream political energies. So in 2008, your book Nixonland came out, and it traced the rise of what you call two American identities. Um, You say that on one side is the so-called silent majority, which we've uh, talked about a little bit, you know, the non-shouters, the patriots. Um, and on the other side are the so-called liberals, the cosmopolitans, the, the you know, Democrats. Um, you write that these two groups are staring at each other from behind a common divide, each equally convinced of its own righteousness, each equally convinced the other group was defined by evil. Um, you, you have touched on this, but I want to um, get you to say a bit more about Richard Nixon's role in, in helping to create and really sharpen this divide. Let, let me, let me uh, give an example of how Nixon kind of became a symbol of uh, America's division about what was good and what was evil and what was American and what was anti-American. In um, 1971, I believe, Philip Roth, the you know, late great novelist, wrote a novel, a satirical novel about Richard Nixon called Our Gang. And it was absolutely you know, foul and scatological and nasty. And on the Nixon tapes, you can hear Richard Nixon learning about this novel and talking about this novel with one of his aides. It probably was uh, Bob Haldeman and saying, it got a really good review in Newsweek. Do you think that they're behind it, right? So this was Nixon's paranoia that if someone was attacking him this savagely, they must be part of this liberal conspiracy out to get him as a representative of you know, the forces of American decency. So on the one side, you have Philip Roth writing this novel, trying to blow the lid off Richard Nixon as a, you know, a violation of everything that's good and true and decent in the American patrimony. And on the other side, you have Richard Nixon and his men around him, assuming that this was a conspiracy to destroy them. And of course, the people who agreed with Richard Nixon, who you know, delivered him a uh, 49-state landslide in 1972, only a year later, in a lot of ways, weren't doing so, weren't supporting Richard Nixon despite that kind of paranoia, despite that sort of rage, but because of it. They identify with that rage that they see in Richard Nixon. You know, on the campaign trail in 1972, you know, you'd get anti-war protesters, you know, throwing rocks at Richard Nixon, shouting four-letter words at Richard Nixon. But by the same token, it came out during the Watergate hearings uh, the next year that the Nixon administration was intentionally letting in anti-war protesters or even secretly inviting anti-war protesters because they wanted to kind of stage this sort of melodrama of Richard Nixon against the people who yell four-letter words, who throw rocks. You hear them night after night on your television, 
people shouting their obscenities about America and what we stand for. You hear those who shout against speakers and shout them down who will not listen. And you hear those who engage in violence. You hear those and see them who without reason kill policemen and injure them and the rest. And you wonder, is that the voice of America? And I say to you, it is not. It is a loud voice, but my friends, there is a way to answer. Don't answer with violence. Don't answer by shouting the same senseless words that they use, but answer in the powerful way that Americans have always answered. Let the majority of Americans speak up. Speak up on November 3rd. Speak up with your votes. That's the way to answer. Both sides see themselves as the side of uh, justice and truth. Of course, the anti-war protesters are protesting against a war in which, you know, civilians are uh, in North Vietnam are, are being bombed almost indiscriminately that, you know, f- uh, children are f- fleeing schools naked with, you know, napalm streaming from their backs. And uh, on the other side, you have, you know, these people who see fighting a war against the communists as, you know, what Americans birthright is as the guarantors of justice and peace and decency in the world. Let's circle back to George Wallace, who you mentioned earlier. Um, As you know, he ran in the 68 campaign and took five states. Um, So I want to just get you to talk for a minute about um, how you see his impact on American politics. George Wallace is a really interesting figure because he was one of these politicians who had this uncanny sense of sort of following where the mass mind was heading. He started out in the 1950s in politics in Alabama pretty much as a liberal integrationist figure, you know, to to the extent that there were liberal integrationists in Alabama in the 1950s. And he lost his first race for statewide office. And he said something, and if you'll excuse me, you can use this or not, but he said, I'm never going to be out niggered again. He's never going to let someone kind of run to his right, exploiting the fears that people have of, you know, blacks achieving inequality more than he did. And he wins the governor's chair in 1962. And in 1963, he gives his inaugural address in which he cries, um, banning on the spot of a Confederate memorial, saying, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And of course, this is the state, Alabama, where that spring in Birmingham, the um, police chief, Bull Connor, is mowing down children with fire hoses and police dogs. It's the uh, it's the state that October of 1963 in which four little girls are bombed in a church that was a civil rights headquarters. And the thing that was really shocking about uh, George Wallace was not that he was a Southern demagogue politician. America had seen those before, but that he entered Democratic presidential primaries in the North in the 1964 presidential election against Lyndon Johnson in states like Indiana and Wisconsin, and that he gets a lot of votes. Basically, the idea that this sort of rhetoric of racial reaction could be popular, even in what was supposed to be the liberal North. He becomes a very galvanizing and very polarizing figure, in many ways more so than Richard Nixon, because Richard Nixon is a dog whistle politician. He, he kind of stokes these racial fears in language that's kind of includes within it plausible deniability, right? He can talk about law and order. He can talk about how Americans have a right to be safe in their homes. And he doesn't ever mention African-Americans. He doesn't ever 
mention race. George Wallace, during the same period, is giving the same story with the bark off. So he runs for president in 1968. This time he runs as an independent, which is an enormous threat to Richard Nixon because he's going for the same backlash voters. And one of the most memorable events in the 1968 convention is when George Wallace gives a rally at Madison Square Garden in New York. Again, a northern, supposedly liberal state. And the kind of running street battles between the supporters of George Wallace and those people protesting George Wallace are so intense that one of the reporters on the scene says, you're never going to wonder what it was like to live in Weimar, Germany, when Hitler was coming to power again. And inside uh, Madison Square Garden, George Wallace gives a speech in which he says, and this, the context for this is Robert McNamara, the defense sec- secretary, had, had uh, visited Harvard, and students had laid down in front of his limousine to protest. And George Wallace says, basically, that if any, any protesters ever laid down in front of my limousine, I'll run them over. And he gets the kind of shrieking, hollering approval from, you know, 18,000 people in Madison Square Garden that really has people, you know, thinking about what it was like in Germany in the late 1930s. And he gets, you know, uh, a good, you know, like a 15% of the vote. And the only reason he didn't get more was he uh, chose as his running mate this crazy guy who uh, seemed to want to, you know, unleash nuclear weapons. Curtis LeMay. Bombs away LeMay. Right. You know, uh, obviously history doesn't repeat itself. And you've written specifically about that. Um, But I I do want to ask you if you see any... um, uh, let's call them resonances between the present day and the late 1960s. In a lot of respects, what we're experiencing now and uh, isn't nearly as uh, intense and as frightening as what people experienced in the 1960s and in the 1970s. You know, in the middle of the 1970s, there were domestic terrorism bombings, you know, every day, every week. You know, after, after four Kent State University students were killed by the Ohio National Guard, just about three quarters of the universities in America shut down. They went on strike, right? I mean, that's the kind of institutional kind of chaos we're not really yet seeing on the ground in America. Right. And there were riots in cities across the country in response to the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right. When uh, we saw riots in Baltimore over the death of Freddie Gray and you know, riots in Ferguson, Missouri. You know, these were very frightening and and galvanizing things, and rightly so. But the riots in Chicago in 1968 after Martin Luther King's assassination, you know, they basically leveled two whole miles of Madison Street in Chicago. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the riots in Watts in 1965, dozens of people died at the hands of police. The riots in uh, Newark, New Jersey in 1967 were pacified by police. And then the state police came in and basically mowed bystanders down, you know, about 20 of them, right? So this kind of blood and fire that was experienced during this period, I'm not going to say rule it out that we're not going to see it, but we're certainly not seeing it now. Now, by the same token, there weren't nearly as many guns on the street then. So, you know, I'm not going to say we should breathe easy. But uh, at least when it comes to that sort of ground-level violence, that sort of ground-level 
institutions kind of clanking to a clanking to a halt. We're not seeing that yet. People say, oh, they read my book, Nixon Land, and it's so uncannily parallel to what's happening now. But, you know, myself, I, I don't see the uncanniness. I just see, you know, the unfolding of the divisions that are basically constitutive of America and this adventure we have of trying to live together in such a, in such a, in such a fundamentally divided society. This bias we have towards believing America is this country that's, you know, united and at peace with itself is very strongly rooted in our national character. America's um, uglier than a lot of us want to be able to admit. If you look at us as Americans over the long sweep of our history, here, here's a question. Are we a liberal people who give in to conservative impulses and forces now and then, or are we fundamentally a conservative people who've had periods of liberal politics, such as uh, the New Deal, the Great Society, etc. You know, in so many ways, uh, where it, it's both and. I mean, let me give you an example of uh, the immediate Cold War period. You know, one of the great progressive accomplishments of American foreign policy is the Marshall Plan, right? It's famous. Uh, we basically decided we were going to rebuild Western Europe and turn it into a prosperous consumer society. Now, that was an example of a wonderful virtuous circle. It worked strategically, creating sort of a bulwark against our strategic enemy in the Soviet Union. It created a market for American products, so it helped the American economy, but it also was humanitarian. It basically took war-torn, uh, scorched earth uh, in vast swaths of Europe and turned them into productive societies. But almost at the exact same time that is happening, we have pretty much the opposite policy in Latin America. The policy in Europe is to create a prosperous society as a market for U.S. goods. But if you look at the State Department and National Security Council documents from the same period in South America, they say really our goal there is to create a repository for raw materials that we're going to use in our industries. You know, we are going to build up the militaries in South America. And that was, you know, damaging, damaging, damaging to those societies. It turned them into military garrison states very much for our kind of colonial exploitation. So, you know, on the one hand, we have this sort of liberal uh, foreign policy, and we had this kind of reactionary neo-colonialist foreign policy going on exactly at the same time. It's a complex country, and there's no simple story to which direction we tend. And that's up to us as citizens, you know, what kind of uh, policies we're going to create for our politicians to carry out. Rick Perlstein is a historian who writes about the rise of American conservatism, starting in the 1960s. You've been listening to Campaign 68, a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. This series was produced by Stephen Smith and me, Kate Ellis, along with Tracy Mumford, it was edited by Catherine Winter. Original music by Johnny Vince Evans. Mixing by Craig Thorson. Our senior digital editor is Andy Cruz. We had production help from Taylor Vraney. Check out our website, where you can find a variety of photographs, essays, and historical documents that illuminate the 1968 campaign. Visit us at apmreports.org forward slash podcasts. And if you like this podcast, please help spread the word by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Support for this program comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved. Thanks for listening.